Welcome to the Idle Book Club. This month we're discussing Cloud Atlas by David Mitchell. This is the Idle Book Club for October 2012, and I'm Sean Vanneman. I'm Chris Remo. This month we're talking about Cloud Atlas by David Mitchell, which was released in 2004 and uh, is very soon to be made into a major motion picture from the Wachowski brothers and Tom Twyker. So we wanted to make sure that we got our discussion of this book in early enough that we could encourage our readers to read the book, uh, which is, you know, we think is... It was a crusade. It was a crusade, Chris. It was. (laughs) It was. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't even... I've not... Haven't yet. Never did. So right now, have not seen... Even the trailer. Yeah. And then while we were preparing for this podcast, I saw, like, five minutes ago, I saw the movie poster. What the what is that shit? (laughs) We'll get into that for sure. But um, you picked the book, so Mm -hmm. I guess I'll ask you, what did you think of the book? I loved this book a lot. I read it a few years ago. Um, We're going to assume, for the purpose of this discussion, that you've read the book And if you haven't, you don't mind being heavily spoiled. Um, So on that note, uh, this book consists of uh, six different stories that take place over the course of several hundred years. And the first half of the book visits each of these these tales, each of which is a central character, in chronological order. And then after the sixth one revisits them in reverse back that was so I, I, sorry i didn't mean to interrupt no, but like, that was awesome and i also had no idea what this book was even remotely about mm-hmm. not nor, even nor did i when i picked it up yeah so i started reading it and i went oh sick this is this is gonna be a crazy adventure story in the south pacific in like the 1840s or 18, like eight, mid 1800s i'm stoked and then when the page ended and it went which it does and it goes in the middle of a sentence right in the middle of a sentence and goes to um a new story set in belgium in the night in the 20th century i want to say the 20s maybe yeah in the night yeah in the 1920s uh with a music composer i was so disappointed (laughs) i was super (laughs) disappointed and what's great is that dude finds part of the journal that you have just read in the first chunk of the book, the first 50 pages or 45 pages are this guy, this the journal of Adam Ewing, who's on this boat in the South Pacific. And he is, then in the next story, this guy, Phil, for, for, what's that guy's name? Frobisher. Frobisher is writing to his friend saying, oh, hey, I found this book on this estate, but ah, oh, it cuts off right in the middle. <laughs> I thought that was like, I don't know. It was cute, but it, Mitchell compl- like created the exact feeling inside of me that the character then went on to have in the next, in the next section right, where he's, he's begging six, his, this is lover six myth to yeah. track down a copy of this journal, which, you know, is, is not possible. He ends up finding, right. finding it himself later by coincidence. But, uh, so what did you, Sorry. what did you think of the, um, of the way that these stories were connected to one another? Um, because you know, the, the, you go from Ewing to Frobisher by way of this journal manuscript Right, uh, and then you go from uh, Frobisher, Frobisher to Louisa to, Ray to right to Louisa Way, Ray by way of Music. a much older Sixsmith. Oh, by Sixsmith, right? Because he's th- she's in she gets obsessed with his music though. She gets obsessed with Frobisher's Cloud, uh, Cloud Atlas sextant. Re- sextant, remember? Yeah, she does. But yeah. then also the 
the right and then the right. that story which includes Sixsmith right. is a novel that is sent to the publisher Cavendish. Right. So so that that's the one that I kind of wanted to focus on actually. Okay. That that link because the that's the one that I really struggle with when yeah, I Yeah, me too. It's when whole, I think about yeah. when I think about this book, probably a lot of readers did as well because that whole story presumably is fiction. The right. whole the whole Louisa Ray story which includes which includes this much older Sixsmith um, who is the man Frobisher is writing to who, you know, and, and Frobisher in turn finds this journal. Those could potentially, you can consider those to all be contained within the fiction of, of this Ray. thriller. Right. But that's implausible, right? The idea that an right. author would have actually written that written many layers of, of backstory. Right, exactly. <laughs> well, so, so what Mitchell you, did. <laughs> what do you, right. But what, so what do you make of that? I don't know what to make of that. Entirely. Yeah. You know, it's funny is not until you articulated it just then did I think about it as concretely as I am at this moment? Mm-hmm. Like, I think that was sort of ethereally in the back of my head while I was yeah. reading the book. Yeah. And I didn't, unfortunately for you, dear reader, who's listening to this podcast, <laughs> I did not take as sharp a critical knife right. to that aspect of it. But I am now. <sighs> I don't think it makes the novel as tight, but I'm willing to forgive it. Right. But, I don't know if it's simply by like, well, the, like we'll get into like what, um, I mean, at least I think you want to get into what Mitchell's expressed intent for the interconnectedness of these stories is. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I think my, the way I see it as a reader all the way through and through from like page one to page four or five Oh nine or however long the book is, was this, um, a broader intent to just, illustrate the interconnectedness of of um the characters yeah and the interconnectedness of people so i felt like the to use the word we would use on idle thumbs like the mechanics of it right uh i was willing to forgive in that sense you know i think um but i do think if in fact i don't know i don't i don't i don't know i don't think the novel is presupposing i can't imagine that given the way the novel ends uh with this really like philosophical very grounded well thought out mm-hmm. just uh three pages on the interconnectedness of people mm-hmm. provided by adam ewing in his yeah. last moments on honolulu in honolulu or whatever yeah. um which feels to me the most like the author coming out like mitchell coming out of a character Absolutely. i mean yeah i can't imagine given that that the novel is somehow bookended with 80 to a hundred pages of fiction with inside the fiction. No, I agree. That doesn't make any sense. No, you know, I like agree. that feels outlandish overly, to me. No, no, for sure. <laughs> yeah. I, th- I think it's, it's an overly kind of deconstructivist kind of way of, of looking at the book, uh-huh. but it's, but it's definitely a thing that sticks in my mind every time I reach, yeah, this is the second time I've read through mm-hmm. this book and all of those little explicit connections, uh, I feel, um, came through to me much, more strongly the second time they did the first time. Right. I think when I read the book the first time, I think I absorbed it almost entirely on the thematic level and kind of I mean, not. I mean, not entirely. Obviously, mm-hmm. I really just love the voice of the characters. I think that's a huge strength of Mitchell. Oh my god! Um, but uh, but I di- I don't think I spent much time parsing the specific, as you say, mechanical connections of the comet birthmark and the right. and the the fact that this is a transcript of work of fiction that's passed on. Um, I think when I read it the second time, having 
already knowing all of what happened in the book and already having reflected a lot upon the thematic stuff, I think my brain, my, my thought patterns tended to sort of seep into those cracks mm-hmm. a little bit more. And, uh, you know, I'm definitely not quite sure what to make of it. Um, and, and, and what you say about, uh, the last three pages, Mitchell kind of coming out of the page and, and really as concretely laying out his philosophy and his, the, the themes of the book, I think you're absolutely right. And I, although again, reading it again a second time, and I'm sure you observed this even the first time, mm-hmm. um, uh, he he does that all over the place. Oh, he does. Yeah, he actually, really I have it. a. You have a segment. I imagine. Go, it looks oh, like, go ahead. No, you go first. Yeah, yeah. I don't have one. I don't. Have oh, you don't have one. Oh, I have one. Um, yeah, it's it's actually segmented out. Like, um, it's in the Cavendish story, I do believe. Uh-huh. I have a couple in there. The Cavendish story is awesome. Our upstairs neighbors agree. <laughs> um, I hope that came across on the I, microphone. I love the Cavendish story. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I guaranteed. I got our, into the Cavendish vaunted, story and I was like, Chris Remo loves the story. <laughs> our, vaunted, our vaunted reader, Greg Brown, dislikes it. It's his least of the his, oh, really? favorite of the story. Oh, I want to. So after this, let's, I want to talk, talk about, about which favorites and favorites. Like, yeah, definitely. Yeah. So, like, on page 373, he just straight up, you can see right oh, here, Chris. I have the exact same. Really? Yeah. Right. yeah. Oh, he just segments. Best. I mean, that just feels like yeah. exactly what you're saying. Yeah. Where he's just like, wait a second. David Mitchell has yeah, something to say. Yeah. yeah. Three or four times, only in my youth, did I glimpse the joyous aisles. Before there were lost the fogs, depressions, cold fronts, ill winds, and contrary tides. I mistook them for adulthood. Assuming they were a fixed feature in my life's voyage, I neglected to record their latitude, their longitude, their approach. Young, ruddy fool. What wouldn't I give now for a never-changing map of the ever-constant ineffable to possess, as it were, an Alice of Clouds? And that is, um, like, that just feels like David Mitchell set being like, <clears throat> I have something to say. you were wondering yeah. what this is about. Yeah. And it's so funny because Mitchell is a master of these characters' voices from Cavendish to Sonny 451 really to... Astonishing. Uh, Adam Ewing to the fucking make believe language. It's in that middle one. I can't remember the name of that one. Frobisher too. I thought Frobisher. Um, what is Frobisher it? was possibly my favorite section because I thought the construction of that character's voice was just exquisite. I thought it was remarkable. Oh, Slucius Cross and an Everything After. Yeah, I had a tough time with that. The <laughs> I had first the hardest time I read the book, one. especially. Yeah. Um, and I and when I started it the second time, I still had trouble with it, and then after. After digesting it for a bit, you know, after several pages, mm-hmm. I kind of got into it and Same it no here. longer was a barrier, but it would definitely um, put up a, a bit of a wall for me initially. I felt like I definitely fell into the language way easier than my like general, may, way easier than I would expect myself to because I'm super resistant to that sort of stuff normally. And I was the moment it came at me. The, I read the first page of Slush's Crossing and went... Oh boy. <laughs> like, right. Here we go. I got to deal with this now. But then when I got into it, it, it was trans, it like transported me. Like I was absolutely like, I don't know. I love Hawaii. I love the tropics. I love Hawaii in general. Well, this book centers around Hawaii. Yeah. Honestly. Oh it God. comes back to it. Again we were just again. like stomping on like all five things I really want to talk about in this yeah. book. I'm but, sorry. um, no, it's okay. Cause it's all good stuff. And it's, it's good that it's intertwined in, in a way that, um, we're both recognizing. But, um, you said, uh, uh, that which one is your least favorite? No, you said that this was Cavendish was your favorite. Uh, no, it wasn't my favorite. Oh, it wasn't. Uh, Frobisher okay. was my favorite. Frobisher was, of course. Although yeah. I, I did like Cavendish a lot. Right. Um, I think my favorites were, and this is not going to be surprising probably to you, Sean, or to people who who kind of know my taste. But uh, my favorites, I think, in order were Frobisher, uh, Ewing, and Cavendish. 
And your least favorites? Um, my least favorite was probably was probably Sonmi. Mm-hmm. Um, Same. And then after that, Louis Array. Okay. Um, and then Solution's Crossing is kind of in the middle for me. Right. Which is interesting because I would have – I think the first time I read the book, Solution's was probably my least favorite section. Mainly just because of the shock of getting through the language barrier in it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't I, – especially reading it the second time and I don't think that's necessarily a, a huge criticism right. of mine. And, and it's funny too because I, I think that kind of thing is a little bit in vogue with modern literary fiction. Um, I don't mean I don't mean modern as in just the last few years, but I mean generally speaking, you know, of the last couple decades. Um, there's a there's a protracted segment of that in um, Infinite Jest actually by David Foster Wallace, and I and that that it's not used for the same type of setting, um, but there is a lengthy section written in um, kind of broken English or you know kind of uh, deliberately. Um, yeah. And there's something that I colloquial, collo- extremely yeah. colloquial, yeah. And I, I, I'm always of two minds about it because on the one hand, it's intended to represent language that is simpler and that is less um, complex, right? And 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 uh, the, a more limited vocabulary. But the result of that tends to be that it's very, it's actually very difficult to read, and it actually requires um, a lot. Uh, a lot more conscious thought. Oh as yeah, yeah, to yeah. Just oh, I get, I got, I got actually tired, like mentally tired, right. reading Slush's Crossing. Yeah. yeah, and um, I, I don't know if that is intended on the part of authors like Wallace or Mitchell, or if it's just that's. I mean, that's something that might be intended, but if it's not intended, is probably actually one of the weaknesses of literature as compared to, say, film or something, where that would be not a barrier whatsoever. Right. Right. You know, watching someone say that in a film or listening to someone say that is not in no way presents a barrier. Um, yeah. And, uh, I, you know, I'm definitely someone who, who strongly believes that literature has enormous powers of storytelling and especially interiority as compared to pretty much any other expressive medium when it comes to narrative in particular. Um, but that might be one area where I feel literature struggles a bit. Um, with trying to reproduce affected speech mm-hmm. on the page. Yeah, like I, Irving Welsh's stuff is all like that. Like, I don't know if he wrote Train Spotting and mm-hmm. like all of his stuff is that sort of like really like colloquial Scottish, right. like dis- Like Clockwork deep. Orange by Anthony Burgess. Yeah. yeah. Clockwork Orange is actually a book I don't like mm-hmm. because of that. Ex- it, but, I also don't know if I'm allowed to say it's a book I don't like when I read it when I was 17. <laughs> like, I don't know if I'm allowed to have yeah. opinions that I can carry forth sure. from that era to now. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I didn't like that book then. Uh, yeah, I think, I mean, Sami is definitely my least favorite Yeah, for, I think probably a lot of the same reasons. Um, which is funny because what I love about this book is because everything is so each, each section, it, nothing, at least for me, nothing is my least favorite based on any sort of failure of Mitchell. It's based completely on personal taste. And I think like my friend Fiorella read the book and we were talking a couple weeks ago and she's like, Oh the Sonmi section is my favorite section. I just loved it. Mm-hmm. I just loved it. I went, really? <laughs> oh. <laughs> like, you know, I didn't want to like negate her opinion no, at all, course. especially because we weren't, yeah. you know, I was like, oh, oh okay. Yeah. Yeah. But it was definitely my least favorite for a lot of the, mostly the backdrop. And I think this sort of, um, I don't know. Greg Brown on the forum Greg, Greg made Brown a good comment about this, which, which is, I think for me, exactly how I feel. But I, yeah, and I, I, I somewhat agree. I don't have the post in front of me, but the, the point he was making generally is he was Greg Brown, who's one of our he's one of our um, readers of our 
Idle Thumbs video game podcast as well as this, and he always has insightful things to say. And uh, yeah, sometimes. <laughs> and Let's he, not. I don't want. I don't want to puff up Greg Brown too much. Sure. I don't want to get too big for his britches. Sure, sure. He has a good podcast though that you should read. They should oh, books read and beer. books and beer, which is worth checking out. Yeah. And uh, he was comparing the Sami section favorably to uh, the futurist section from Jennifer Egan's A Visit to the Goon Squad, which won the Pulitzer Prize, and also uh, Gary Steingart's Super Sad True Love Story. Which made a really big splash, kind of in the literary world when it when it came out recently uh, last year, I think, and um, and he, he he, I think in general he's not a big fan of of futurism in literature, and I, I'm I'm generally not either. Um, and he said the reason the Sanmi section worked for him relative to those works uh, was that it didn't. It seemed like Mitchell was setting this whole universe up as what he what Greg Brown termed a pocket universe just purely to support the story that was being told as right. opposed to trying to extrapolate too far out. And I'm, I'm of two minds about that, about that opinion, because I, on one hand, I think that's, I, I agree with him to some extent, but, and that's, and that's the reason even when I say it's my least favorite section, it doesn't mean I disliked it mm-hmm. necessarily, yeah, yeah. but I do think it, Sean, when you say, Things you, the sections you liked less than other sections were not due to Mitchell's failing. They were they're due to your own personal taste, which I think is largely true for me. But I there are things – there were a number of choices in the Sami section that I'm actually not crazy about mm-hmm. um, that just seemed to me like very haphazard, right. futuristic They feel elements. like trite – Exactly. Tri- very trite, futuristic right. sort of like Leaving callings off words that have X's in them. Exactly. So all X words start with X. Calling everything, calling everything their genericized. their genericized brand name, yeah, like oh, he was um, uh, driving a Ford. Driving Fords Ford, are just cars. Took a picture with his Nikon and right. and you know, listen to it on a Sony. The Sony exactly. is the big thing, right? And yeah. and it's it's frustrating because this book shit. was it's Ugh. not good. And this book was published eight years ago. All of those brands are already largely irrelevant for the functions that they were right. that they were portrayed. I mean, right. At looking at instant, the way the, that was written today, it would instantly be a Toyota. Like the car, right. you know, it would be things a Toda, like that. The camera yeah. would be a phone or an iPhone. Maybe it would right. probably just be phone. In fact, you know, right. I mean, that's become the term for a thing that you carry around and take pictures with. It's, right. oh, it's you took a picture on your phone. Um, and the idea of a camera being a Nikon is absurd. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? Right. Um, and, and a, and a, and a thing that you listen to music on being a Sony is just, is so outdated. And th- those aren't, that's not inherent criticism, right? I mean, that doesn't make something literary, less of less quality, be, as literature, but it does feel like but a it, haphazard choice. To, exactly, yeah. it does. Like, feel, eh, it's yeah. unnecessary to it. It ends up becoming distracting for reasons that I think are totally unnecessary in the context of the world they present. Because I Completely presume agree. that the reason Mitchell made those choices is to is to reinforce the you know what he calls the corporatocratic nature of of this society. This right. Co- this. At, at the same I time, I don't think it necessarily. Exactly. Like I think he did a pretty good job. He sold it just then. fine in the entire right. rest of the. And song. also, he sells it so fine at the very beginning in that story where Sami is a server in basically a fast food restaurant called Papa Song. Yeah, and Papa Song is just a creation of Mitchell's, and, and totally serves. Yeah, it totally any, serves yeah. to 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 fulfill what um what he's going for there. And also, I didn't like for me. I don't know. Taking that, taking that opinion back because I like it in terms of location and place. 
but I didn't like it in terms of brand. Like I like I like that all the places I like I liked well I liked that all the places the locations in the book even Sami which takes place a thousand years in the future five hundred years in the future however long it is I can't remember what the year is I think it's about two hundred years oh twenty two hundred or something yeah. is in Korea yeah I thought, uh, really I thought I love that I thought that was great and I liked that Adam uh, Ewing was from San Francisco and I liked mm-hmm. that uh, Frobisher was in uh, Bruges Englishman from yeah Bruges, who was in Belgium yeah, yeah. and um, I can't remember where he else was from. Louisa, uh, Louisa Ray, Ray was, was in Point. I didn't like fiction. It, that I hate. There it is. City. That yeah. was. That's the thing. And that's what's yep. funny is maybe because her book is fiction, that it was okay. Right. Which I also thought was weird is she's in a fictional Southern California city. Yerba's Buenas. Like she's in a fictional Southern California city that is aware of San Francisco and Los Angeles. Exactly. It felt like similar a, a to GTA like game or well, something. similar to like um, Raymond Chandler. Raymond Chandler's books are all set in Bay City, right? Which is, but there's also Los Angeles and Beverly Hills and right. San Francisco, right? Like all those places exist, mm-hmm. except his city, which is, I guess, Santa Monica in in um, Chandler's books. So I don't know if that was just a direct connection to something like Chandler, right? Or um, Dutchel Hammett, which I think those are actually no, in San Francisco. San Francisco. Yeah, those are actually in San Francisco. So I guess Chandler then a, a direct connection to Chandler because he is also telling a mystery story, mystery story, right? And Louisa Ray, inside of the text Cloud Atlas, is in fact fiction, right? Or presented as fiction, right? Which is which is odd because so this gets to the this gets Here we to are. the central <laughs> yeah. the central thematic well not the central thematic but the the central uh, kind of mechanical connection between all these characters which which serves to underpin the themes of the book and I think we should talk about the themes after we talk about this because I think it's really interesting and we started to earlier with the Ewing yeah that's the but, first um, thing I have on my list here but so. When I when I read this book first, like you, when I opened it up, I had no idea what it was about. I had no clue of the structure of anything, you know, of the plot of, of anything, any of the settings. I didn't know anything about it. And so I was equally surprised, you know, when I got to the end of Ewing and suddenly halfway through a sentence I'm reading I'm reading some guy sixty years on. And um and I when I read this book, I loved to me. This book was about six characters who existed across much of the span of human history. I mean, obviously, a, a small slice of human history because it doesn't start until the 1800s. Right, but, but of, of modern, that, reco- of recorded human exactly, history. Exactly, of recent recorded history right. um, into the semi-recent future or semi-near future. And I loved, I loved that those characters, to me, existed connected entirely thematically. And I, I, mm-hmm. I, Because the, the story has an incredibly strong – thematic through line which right. ewing as you say essentially spells out mm-hmm. verbatim you know mm-hmm. just directly at the end of the book and it, and is hinted at frequently throughout the mm-hmm. novel and i and it's funny because i read after i read the book i saw i've seen a couple interviews with david mitchell who has actually come out and said very concretely these characters were intended to be reincarnations of one another really to be the same soul that has persisted through each of these humans, which is one of the things, which is one of the reasons I asked you what you thought of the Louisa Ray right. fiction connection, because right. I, under for what it's worth, own yeah. is professed interpretation of his own work, um, that seems to present an odd contradiction. I really don't like that. I don't either. Oh, I, that I, kills me. I strongly dislike oh, it. Oh, that really fact. kills me. That yeah. kills like actually the thing that I've written down is like my giant takeaway theme of the book. Oh, the what it, so go ahead. Let's transition to that then. Like. I mean, like we've established okay. we both This is like, like life shit. This is like why I like this book so much, ahead, actually. Especially the more I think about it. Yeah. Like, like when I was sitting over here writing my notes, like, this is, like, 
I love that the theme, there's this sort of, there's this backdrop um, of islandness. Yeah. And like, Even but yeah. Even is a coastal city. and But yeah. still, like, this is the feeling of islandness, of yeah, like, no, of what it means on both a humanity level sure. and both a terra firma level, right? Yeah. And, but um, I just liked how intimate, like, and isolated each individual in the story felt. And sort of like, like an island, they're sort of like people are coming in, coming to them and leaving from them, but they're still sort of like, it felt like everybody was just so isolated. It felt like every individual was attempting to share their story in some way, but I thought he did so such a nice job of making everybody feel like every single character, every single protagonist feel like, um, a very isolated individual. This is sort of like isolated well, each feeling. Them, each of them achieves some level of connection or redemption at the end of their story as well. Exactly. It, it, even, for sure. even if in the case of Frobisher, it's and everybody's story is so hopelessly, it's, life, it's but, so like not hopelessly, but so like wonderfully optimistic, I think. And like, absolutely, which I also love. And I think that the, the book sort of has this backdrop of islandness, but with grander points of interconnectedness that mm-hmm, I don't fucking need like theology or like the idea of souls to, to reinforce. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that actually undercuts the thing that he's built, which is sort well, of, so the, this is, so this yeah. is how I feel about that. I think that there's lots of room for, for theology and, and, and that kind of philosophy in this, but I think it should be to, to me, what was so strong about this book is that you have characters who in, who interpret their own loneliness and their own interconnectedness in the in in the world through the lens of theology or other characters who don't exactly as opposed to the structure of the book itself framing it as some kind of explicitly metaphysical exactly connection. that's kind and of so, that's exactly what I meant and the the my favorite uh, the, oh why did you tell me that sorry now I'm, just, know, I'm, I'm shame, sitting here just like well see and this ties directly into yeah. the movie trailer so let's later on in the podcast have you watch the movie trailer and then no, yeah we a, should take a break a short a minute anyway, at the yeah. end we'll have a 10 minute maybe a little discussion about well let's that. take a break because I have to go to the uh, bathroom and I'll watch it and we'll come back well I don't I don't want to do that now I want to finish talking no no about not right book. now but in a minute but, in a minute oh, oh, yeah, sure, yeah once okay, a natural okay. we'll find a natural break yeah and so my the reason these were my two favorite stories were um Frobisher and Ewing, one of one of the many reasons. I mean, part of the reasons they were my favorite is because they're just beautiful. They're gorgeous. I mean, they're truly just beautiful in the most just purely aesthetic, non-deep meaning of the word. But just those passages are just beautiful. They are gorgeous to read. Um, they are about people in places of great natural or aesthetic beauty. In, in Frobisher's case, uh, you know, this, he's just constantly surrounded by by music and these aesthetic dreams he has and this and um, as well as his cynical side and his, you know, his manipulativeness. But then, and in Ewing's case, there's obviously lots of ugliness and the actions going around, but he's surrounded by, by great natural beauty and by his own personal sense of faith with that, which I found really interesting mm-hmm. because those two characters are the precise opposite in that way, in the sense that Ewing is something that I think is actually fairly rare in modern, um, literary fiction, which is a genuinely um, sympathetic, pious, good religious figure. I mean, I feel that's actually becoming less common mm-hmm. in, in again, modern literary fiction. But writing. Ewing is also really naive, you know, which I think is interesting. Like, I think, na- like, 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 Ewing is taken advantage of so like grossly sure by, but he's, yeah. but he's an undeniably good person. I mean, he's, he's, he's not 
I mean, yeah, I mean, I don't know. <sighs> he's the, yes, he, I guess I mean, he takes in the, the especially this, the way yeah. the book ends. I think it's right. fairly clear. He's no, the right. kind of person the world needs it in order to to not not that not that not that all good people need to be religious, obviously, but but someone with that sense of moral conviction from wherever it derives right. are the type of people that you need to get from point A to point B. I but it's funny he, though is, I mean, uh, it, uh, I don't disagree with you at all. I just didn't carry that for him while I was reading the book mm-hmm. because things would happen on that boat that he would bystand in for, like he would be a bystander to that was, that didn't put him in the position of sort of like of righteousness to me. Like when the guys are being hazed and they like almost drown the guy. Oh, in I think the, in that's the because he's not a, I mean, that's just, I don't think, I think that's because he's a human. I think that's because he's just a normal. I, mean, no, no, I, no, no, no. I think it would have been. I think it would have been false to portray him otherwise. I mean, no, no exactly, I, exactly. I think I just I see him as a man trying to be good. I guess who like really cares about being good, and I think that's. I guess that's what you're saying. It, it is basically what I'm saying. Yeah, and I. I, oh, I yeah. Sorry. No, I like that more the more I think about it. And there, I think one of the other reasons it resonated me with particularly upon rereading the book is because. After um, this, I read when it when it was released. I read um, David Mitchell's uh, most recent book, *The Thousand Autumns of Jacob de Zod, and that's about that's also historical. The entire book is historical fiction. There's no there's no weird conceptual structural thing, and it's all about this Dutchman um, who lives who who travels to uh, the Dutch port of Dejima in Japan, which at the time was the only port open to any Western power at all. Um, and it's, it was extensively researched and really interesting. One of the things I loved about, about that book, similarly, it had a very a character that actually reminds me very much of Adam Ewing, which is someone who is strongly personal, strongly principled on the interior level is not, does not always have the power to act on it on the external level, mm-hmm. um, is possessed of strong personal faith. Um, and it's just, it's the reason I like it in, in the context of historical fiction is because I think it's totally, I think it's a totally um, appropriate archetype for that era, right? I mean, I think right. I think in the modern world in which we live, which is very multicultural and very multi-religious, I think um, it makes it, it, what I said earlier. I think makes perfect sense that we see fewer characters of great religious faith who are uh, portrayed um, sympathetically, simply because we we live in a world with a much greater multiplicity of options of how you choose to interpret the world. Whereas someone who actually is growing up in the 1800s is much more likely to be funneled into, you know, living in a particular culture, you're much more likely to be funneled very specifically into a particular worldview, a particular, particular theology, um, just by virtue of where you grow up. And I like that David Mitchell acknowledges that and doesn't mind presenting a character who takes the right lessons from that, right? Because they're obviously many, many religious people throughout history who did not, uh, who did not take the right lessons from that right. at all. It's quite clear from history. Um, and I like that. And I feel like that's the easy, at, at this point in 2012, that's the easier character to present is the one who's cynically religious right. living in the 1800s for, uh, I hear and, you and I, and I yeah. like that. Uh, I like that, uh, Mitchell doesn't, but similarly, I love that by contrast, Frobisher is a character who lives not long after Ewing. I mean, he lives, I think about 60 years later. Um, who is the complete opposite. You know, he, he is someone for whom faith is utterly inaccessible. And my, my favorite, probably my single favorite quotation 
from this book. And one of my favorite literary quotations in the last decade uh, is bold. <laughs> I, I, I love it so much. Is um, is Frobisher? I don't have the quote in, quotation in front of me, but I'm pretty sure I can remember it almost verbatim. Um, he's passing in front of a church and he's looking in and he's reflecting on this and he says, "Faith is the world's least exclusive club, but it has the its craftiest doorman." And I I thought that was an amazing way to sum up the interiority of someone to whom faith is simply inaccessible. Um, not, not because there's anything wrong with him, but just because some people I don't think are wired that way. And I love Mitchell's ability to write these two characters back to back. One of whom has faith central to his self identity and to every aspect of his life. And the other of whom is never going to be able to, to live in that world. Um, probably in large part because, that that very faith probably tells him all the time that the inclinate the personal you know sexual inclinations right, he has right, right. are completely illegitimate. Right. Um, and I that's the the contrast of those two characters gets to the heart of something I I just love so much about Mitchell is just his ability to completely inhabit these characters who come from such different places and have such different worldviews and yet to make them both so fully sympathetic. Right. You know because again they're they're different in so many ways on the surface as well. I. Um, well, I think that's what's so wonderful, actually, about the book as a whole is like, absolutely. is that Mitchell becomes himself the author, part of the grander point of the book, where he is sort of the nexus point for all these characters. Obviously, he's yeah. the he's given them all life, and then to have Ewing in the end talk about their like the interconnectedness of people, um, and sort of just like this sort of like very blunt like empathetic message of the book. Um, oh, I mean, I think I think that the core message of the book deals very much with the predation of man upon man and right. the 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 cyclical nature of that, the way that that reasserts itself because throughout the, yeah. throughout all of human society, and yet how there's always that spark that defies it. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's it's almost it's almost sort of a trite, cheesy message in a way, but that's. Kind of what I love about no, it. No, I love that. Yeah, a, I like that it was sincere. It's such a core that. universal message that you almost think of as like sort of kindergarten morality, but Mitchell explores it textually. I mean, just through the the circumstances of these characters with such kind of just literary panache. You know, I mean, it's just right. it's remarkable for for such a sort of straightforward, simple theme. Um, you know, it's the kind of theme that you talk about in like third grade when you're learning right, about the Civil right. War. You know, I mean, it's it's in slavery, you know, mm-hmm. and but but it's and it's the kind of thing that has the potential to to become uh, to be treated less seriously than it maybe deserves because exactly. it's so oversaturated right. in the culture. And but it's that's actually it's, it's like undersaturated, but over. But, but, well, yeah, it's oversaturated in terms of of just mention, kind of. Right. But I think it's certainly underserved in terms of the depth of consideration. I, I completely and, agree. And I I think that's. I think that's – it's just wonderful that Mitchell is able to explore it through such different perspectives all throughout history. I mean that's I think one of the reasons – what we're talking about now I think is one of the reasons we're both fundamentally unsatisfied by Mitchell's stated um, stated um, connection between these characters, the literal metaphysical right. aspect of it, which is that it just seems totally unnecessary. Right. right? He does such an excellent job threading the needle of taking this theme through all these different mm-hmm. eras and characters and settings – um, it seems almost banal to and to it, then it, say, "Oh, and they're a bunch of." It also, uh, it's just not something. I don't know if I was David Mitchell, it's something I would have never done because you put enough in the book that if somebody took I mean, that away, yeah. I mean, especially I'm thinking about the comet birthmark that they all have. 
like character after character after character share a birthmark yeah and i feel like if you're the character if you're the type of person who's going to anchor the what you take away from this this uh the novel in um reincarnation then wonderful great do that exactly fantastic yeah I didn't need to hear that. That's what it was. No, <laughs> like, you know what I mean? I you son of a bitch. And I, you know, well, <laughs> you. and and to that point, um, a, a lot of the discussion on the idle forums um, about this <coughs> about this book. I'm sorry, uh, on our forums, the pre-discussion thread uh, about Cloud Atlas dealt with the the notion of the the death of the author school of thought. You know, the notion that once an author puts something out there, it really makes no difference what the author's motivation was, what the author's author's explanation of it or interpretation of it is. Um, and I think that's that's a completely valid viewpoint. Yeah, I know. I think I, I prescribe to that. I think you subscribe to it. Yeah, uh, yeah or subscribe to that. I, I prescribe as well. You prescribe it. <laughs> I prescribe and subscribe. Uh, no, absolutely. I mean, one of the fundamental like this sort of my brain turned 15 degrees and locked into a different way of thinking moments that ever happened in my life was like freshman year of college when a, a really like renowned critical studies professor made this very very well constructed argument over the course of about 90 minutes for um uh not considering the intent of an author while criticizing the text yeah and it really just sort of locked into my brain that how much um how just what a rabbit hole intent becomes absolutely you know and becomes a whole nother form of criticism that is just ineffable like you just can't it's ever almost more of a research project than anything right. else not to mention you can never you you really can't trust what the author says because right. i think there have almost certainly been plenty of cases throughout the history of literature in which an author has written a book it's been received in a certain way and then the way the book has been received has then doubled back and influenced the way the author maybe very subtly slightly and not intentionally historically revises his own intentions i mean I or think the that, how the, his, the author's historically thing. framed like i mean like salinger is a good example of things like that you know of oh, like sure. a book oh, absolutely that, yeah mm-hmm. but i'm saying yeah. even within an author's own stated opinions i mean i think okay. it's very possible for the right. for an author of a work to essentially what i get what i'm what i'm essentially saying here is buying his own hype is what i'm saying right. is, is when an author is when things are said about an author's works so frequently and so loudly that the author and I don't just I don't just mean an author of literature I mean a director or a screenwriter I mean a right. musician I mean a video game designer anyone right. whose whose work is is spoken about in the culture um I think it's very possible for them to there's a feedback loop that they can say oh right that is totally what I meant that sounds really smart right um and I don't think it generally happens that concretely where it's oh that's what I, I think said. It, I'm smart. I don't think it happens concretely but I think it fucking happens as no, no, that's what powerfully as concrete think, yeah yeah and I, that's why one of the reasons I say you can't even really trust what the author claims his own intent was. Yeah. I mean, there's you're all you're you're essentially just taking their word for it. Whereas the book is what it is. The, yeah, it's, well, you have and a front cover and a back cover, and you have the text in between, and right. that's what you have. The text is the text. and go through it five hundred thousand times right. and come out Whereas, with it with what you I mean, want. And there have been documented cases where um, certain authors, and I, I want to say um, uh, Mark Twain maybe is an example of this. I can't remember off the top of my head. Of authors giving explicitly different interpretations of their own work in, <laughs> in different, different forms, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you know, I mean, it's just- honestly, like I feel like I'm working on a game called The Walking Dead, and I'm the lead writer, and I've written a bunch of it, all of it, <laughs> mostly. Uh, is eighty percent of it, seventy percent of it, and I feel that now as it's coming out in chapters, I'm like, please, like I feel myself revising my intent yeah. as I go. Mm-hmm. 
and I will say that right here, right now. And it's horrible. And I don't even want to express my intent from here on out, like at all. Even when it comes to making fundamental decisions that I made with other people in a room and know exactly what we said. Mm-hmm. Like this kind of gets back to like sense of an ending, like the idea of did I right. even say that sort of thing. Not only that, it like gets reinforced it's, through. It's, yeah, it's uh, part of the current understanding of of brain science. Uh, we know that the more you access a given memory, the less accurate that memory becomes, which is a really terrifying thought. And that's a lot of what the sense of the sense of an ending is about. Right. Um, but it also is very relevant to this discussion because you, you, the, especially with a work that an author, I think in the case of, of the David Mitchell, I, I think that is a, a direct enough thing that I take his word for it in that particular case. I don't agree with it in the context of the book, but I believe that's what he was intending. You don't subscribe um, to. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but I do think, especially when with works that are a few decades old, it is absolutely possible and likely for authors to reframe ex- uh, experiences they had that influenced mm-hmm. um, yeah. works that they wrote. And I think it's also worth mentioning that, like, even though I'm sitting here saying, "Why the fuck did you tell me that, you son of a bitch?" Like, I do very much divorce authorial intent from anything I get out of something. Oh, absolutely. And I think, and dear I- reader. I would suggest you do the same <laughs> if you want to not be crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, yeah. and that's something that I, and that's the reason I, well, that's a reason I don't have a problem continuing to love this book because if I, exactly. if I was forced in my brain to start concretely seeing all these characters as reincarnated souls, I think I would like this book a lot less than I do. Oh, don't but worry. I, the Wachowskis will <laughs> right. we'll make and sure. In, and in, not only that, but they're um, in the Cavendish chapter, I think he, one of the moments I love is, and I, maybe there's another mention that contradicts this that I'm forgetting, but at one point, doesn't he say something to the effect of, you know, he reads this Louisa Way Ray book mm-hmm. and he sees all the mentions of the comet bookmark. He says, Oh, I have a bookmark, but you could never call it a comet. Some just kind of silly blob. You know, I mean, it's, right. I liked that, that little, that little jab right. at that cute structure. Right. I like that, that Cavendish kind of punctures it a bit. Right. I mean, one, well, it's, the fo- yeah. it's part of, it's, it's, completely suited his character um but two it it just deliteralizes it slightly right well you know? it, it made the circle a little less polished exactly you know right. which, which i, I really think is exactly you as an author that level like knowing where to layer in ambiguity mm-hmm. is a really good skill yeah, <laughs> like it's a absolutely. fucking brilliant skill and it's yeah. what you it allows you to both uh, it's, it's, it's you just cast this really wide net the way people are going to accept your book mm-hmm. or accept your text, whatever it is, you're giving people all these sort of like, I imagine it's like doors in a hallway. You're giving people all these doors to access the meaning that they're looking for um, while having your own and like creating this shared space in the, in the shared hallway. I don't know. I like, I really like that stuff a lot and I think that's really, really important. And God damn it. <laughs> I don't know. It's like, I think it's, I'm glad this is spun off into a conversation about authorial intent. But uh, I never would have thought these characters were supposed to be reincarnates. So, <clears throat> yeah. Do you want to take a break really sure. quick? Okay, cool. And we're back. I've seen a trailer. Yeah. Before we jump into the trailer, though, I think we, uh, you said you wanted to maybe just kind of appreciate some moments from the book just that illustrate Aside from all of the thematic concerns, 
what just a great writer Mitchell is. He's unstoppable. I, it's I think unbelievable. It really is unbelievable. And I think we in the in the second half of this past conversation, I think we got bogged down a bit maybe in in a, you know criticisms of Mitchell's interpretation right. of the thing, and maybe some some moments that are not actually central to the experience of reading the book itself, which is obviously the thing that matters the most. Um, so yeah, yeah, no, we should balance that out a bit. <laughs> okay. Well, we can, we can, uh, proceed to heap massive amounts of praise on yeah. Mr. Mitchell. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, and I, it's so funny, we wrote down sort of the same thing we wanted, we wanted to bring up to each other, which is outside of his ability to, of the grander themes and structures and backdrops of the book. And like, I mentioned islandness and I think that was something that was just, I loved, I loved that. Hawaii was featured and I loved how people felt so like intimately how, how isolated and, and how intimate you got with them in their isolation. And, um, which I, yeah, I think was I, enhanced by the fact that so much of this book was journals and narratives and recollections. Yeah. Yeah, know? definitely. Uh, is that why you didn't like Louisa Ray so much? Uh, yeah. I mean, a lot of, a lot of the Louisa, the Louisa Ray story by design certainly felt like a fairly bog standard kind of, thriller pulp thriller thing mm-hmm. um which just compared to at least for me most much of the rest of the book um especially you know especially the first few sections i suppose um just they seemed so much so much richer and fuller than mm-hmm. that and the louisa ray stuff seemed very thin to me from a just from a literary standpoint like it was just less it was less exciting i guess just the words Right. Everything about it was just just a little more. I see. The thing is, is you know? like I actually, I have I had a different feeling because I actually mm. really liked the Louisa Ray story, and I like it even more the further I get from it mm. because I thought it was fucking. <laughs> I have been swearing a lot on this podcast. I think it's only because it's only to accent my enthusiasm. Sure, but I thought it was tremendous in how. It's almost like if you're gonna be if you have the skills that Mitchell has. Mm-hmm. And you're going to write stories like Ewing and Frobisher and, and even, um, Solution's Crossing. Yep. You have all these tools. You have all these skills. You're just like this, this, like decathlete mm-hmm. of, of, of a writer. And for him to say, I have built this world and I've built, I've already started to construct this narrative based on something I'm really, really like, there's a very clear, thing I'm trying to say here and I have very concrete themes and I think I'm exploring those to the best of my abilities and skills inside of these these more uh, literary narratives inside this book. I'm going to take a pulp narrative mm-hmm. and not only uphold my themes and my uh, backdrops but do them to the absolute bring that pulp all the way up and let it sit alongside these other like again more literary yeah. forms of storytelling mm. and have it just flow and i thought it was a complete success i thought the the feelings i got from the other stories i got from louisa ray and i was like how is he doing this with a $5.99 pulp <laughs> paperback <laughs> novel right yeah how is he doing this yeah. and i thought there was it's funny because i i always asked you during the break like do you have any of this sort of specific plot points you have anything outside of grander plot points just a favorite moment that you thought was so perfectly rendered by mitchell and i actually have one and it's from that story oh go ahead yeah which is um uh, let me find it it's when uh, number for people yeah it's right here it's when um joe napier is killed 
what's the and page number of the paperback edition? It's page 432. It's inside of Louisa Ray. It's chapter 68, which mm-hmm. is a hilarious that much of a page. Right. <laughs> like, And yeah. I think at one point, I think it's a very self-aware construction of pulp. Oh, it absolutely oh, I There's love no that. doubt about yeah, that. Yeah. yeah, clearly. Yeah. I mean, even with the chapter numbers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I yeah, thought very short, punchy chapters. Yeah. The way he describes Joe Napier's death, I, I thought was like, yeah, go ahead. Okay. He says, Joe Napier drifts in a torrential silence. The ghost of Bill smoke hovers over his dark vision. More than half of himself is gone already. Words come bruising through the silent bruising. Uh, words come bruising the silence again. He's going to kill her. That 38 in your pocket. I've done my duty. I'm dying for Christ's sake. Hey, go tell Lester Ray about duty and dying. Napier's right hand inches and inches to his buckle. He wonders if he is a baby in his cot or a man dying in his bed. Nights pass, no lifetimes. Often Napier wants to ebb away, but his hand refuses to forget. The butt of a gun arrives in his palm. His finger enters a loop of steel and a flare of clarity illuminates his purpose. The trigger, this, yes. Pull her out, slowly now. Angle the gun. Bill Smoke is just yards away. The trigger resists his index finger, then a blaze of incredible noise spins Bill Smoke backwards, his arms flailing like a marionette's. In the fourth to last moment of his life, Napier fires another bullet into the marionette silhouetted by stars. The word Silvaplana comes to him, unasked for. In the third to last moment, Bill Smoke's body slides down the cabin door. Second to last, an inset digital clock blinks from 2157 to 2158. Napier's eyes sink, newborn sun sh- uh, sunshine slants through ancient oaks and dances on a lost river. Look, Joe Herons. Half a page. Yep. You don't know any of those things about Napier. He's never like the the, the river a little bit. He has a cabin up and up in the up yeah. in the river. Yeah, um, up on the river. But the word Silvaplana, like just the like, you get so like <sighs> the description of a side character's death. In an airport pulp mystery novel, is just so amazingly rendered. Like I, I felt like oh. so, this is the thing. I yeah. okay. This is how we feel about this. I agree with you. I love that passage. And actually, if I had to pull out another moment, I loved in Louis Ray story. Louis Ray story it would actually be another death. It would be uh, the death of Sixsmith at the hands of Bill Smoke, right? Who Napier takes out, which I thought was a wonderful passage, mm-hmm. and I could maybe read a few sentences of, but. The, and there were a lot of those moments I loved. The ones I, the ones I didn't, the parts of the story that I didn't love were actually the ones about Louisa Ray because I felt like that was when it just fell back into being fairly standard, just kind of thriller stuff. Right. Yeah. And just, it was just the, mecha- the procedural mechanical parts of it, which just didn't, a lot of it didn't have that same spark for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can totally see where you're coming from. And I think that's a, that's, you know, that's a totally valid, valid viewpoint. And I don't mean to say I didn't enjoy it because I did. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, one of the things I did like about it was how willing, um, how willing Mitchell was to let, to let catastrophic things happen at just, just at the drop of a hat without the slightest bit of melodramatizing or anything. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I lo- even though it broke my heart when Six, Six Smith was killed because I love that character so much. I love that Six Smith is this, um, He's so central to two characters, two separate stories in the book, and yet he himself is just a bit player in each one of them. I love that. I think mm-hmm. he's a tragic character in right. that respect. And so it was so painful for me when he got taken out by Bill Smoke within, I think, the first several pages yeah. of the, or I guess on the, I guess in chapter eighteen, so to speak, of right. the thing. And these are short chapters, as you said. 
Um, and uh, but I loved that Mitchell just let it happen and didn't hang on it and didn't kind of. There was no lead up. It was it it the, the way that he wrote it played out exactly as a a completely amoral assassin like Bill Smoke would in, would in fact execute, right. which is just business like here it is it's done whereas you contrast that to napier right and you know i mean well napier's is a very like personal telling of killing the villain you know what do you mean oh how he kills napier well i'm just saying the way that that napier reflects on this is very different from the way bill smoke reflects on it napier this is something that is out of the ordinary for him it's a it's a it's a it's a cathartic moment and it's also his life passing away from his eyes and like whereas smoke is someone who has so he's just a just literal psychopath um in the actual meaning of the word and you know mm-hmm. when he when he kill when he when he kills six smith that's bill smoke hears the lock breathe the pills he took earlier clarify his perception terribly and when six smith shuffles into the bedroom humming leaving on a jet plane the hitman could swear he feels his victim's pulse slower than his own smoke sights his prey through the door crack six smith flumps onto the bed the assassin visualizes the required motions three steps out fire from the side through the temple up close Smoke darts from the doorway. Six Smith utters a guttural syllable and tries to rise, but the silenced bullet is already boring through the scientist's skull and into the mattress. The body of Rufus Six Smith falls back as if he is curled up for a postprandial nap. Blood soaks into the thirsty eider down. Fulfillment throbs in Bill Smoke's brain. Look what I did. That whole thing. I mean, the sen- average sen- right. sentence length there mm-hmm. is probably half of what it was. In the, the neighbor in the- sentences are really short. That's true. I guess yeah, yeah, they are. they're incredibly short. I guess you're right. Yeah, I guess yeah. that's not true. What I just said. Yeah. But in general. It's it's a lot more matter. You just of have fact. a better reading voice it's than I do. Smoke, <laughs> it's smoke. I mean, it's him just parsing each mm-hmm. moment. I guess. I guess what I you're right. The sentences in the Napier are short, but they're moments that are of immense individual significance to Napier. I mean, he's thinking. You know, he's reflecting. Smoke mm-hmm. is not. He's purely observing, and he he's got this little moment where he gets this little dopamine burst or whatever. Oh, look what right. I did! And it's this little. Well, I think it's just. I mean, like all it does is is again, like I think. Because who's the who's the supposed author of Lisa Ray? Some woman, Hillary V. Hush. Yeah, Hillary V. Hush. Hillary Hush. So all he's doing is sort of like I mean, as Hillary Hush is, he's telling what each of those characters is feeling. Like no, I know versus, what he's doing. Yeah, Napier versus Smoke. Just, that was a no. I know. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, I'm just saying that was a thing I appreciated about right. about this about. Right. So no. Did, I, well, the I thing is, I like is I like that I, lo- I love that Smith's, Six Smith's death is so just, yeah, just happens yeah. and he's just gone and he seems he's this character that exists. He's the only character when you're reading at, at that moment who has a foot firmly planted in the story from before and the story from after. He's the yeah, first character absolutely. that literally has two alive feet he's in the story. Entirely sympathetic. Yeah, he just seems like a he's, wonderful person. He's yeah. he's friends with. Um, he's obviously he's, no. He's he, a well-meaning person who right. clearly feels his life has not amounted to very much right you know i mean he sort of lives in the shadow of these people who do great things right i mean he's right. he his you know the love of his life uh frobisher kills himself after composing what you see over the course of the novel is an incredibly uh uh one is is a work that is singular in in its creation right, right? and and uh Sixsmith is clearly aware of that and also frobisher never until the very end till the really very last sentence he writes in his life um, doesn't really give Six Smith the attention that clearly is going the other way around. I mean, it's, right, right, it's, right, right, and, right. And similarly, when he's um, in the Louise Array chapter, um, Six Smith is he catalyzes this event for that Louise Array 
and she ends up becoming essentially this um, sort of deep throat like uh, you know Woodward and Bernstein thing that she just blows open. Um, Six Myth is essentially a footnote in that. You know, he, he right. leaked this information to her initially and then dies almost immediately. You know, he's right. he well, he, he is deep throat in that analogy. He is deep throat in that analogy, but he doesn't without yeah. any of the mist like this sort of mystique or right the long term enigmatic history. Yeah, exactly, he's going to hang right. around. Yeah. Um, and so there were a lot of parts of the Louise Ray story that I did really like, um, but there were a lot of it that just felt like I was just churning through an airport novel. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, I, I, like, I blew through that stuff. It was like one sitting. I, mean, I, did, yeah, yeah, I, I don't know. Too, that was, yeah. I, I was just so taken by the ability for him, for him to take a form that everybody just goes, eh, yeah, yeah, and, 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 and do something I thought was incredibly personal and really sure. also just slotted in perfectly into the larger text that he was creating. I thought that was like ballsy mm-hmm. as hell and really good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Give a, a moment because I I, pull, I pulled that Napier moment as like a thing that I thought was just mm-hmm. incredibly well rendered. Yeah, do you have something? Yeah, um, I'm trying to think. I mean, I I think most of the most of the the little moments that I highlighted tended to be um, shorter little aphoristic. That's the thing actually I love about David Mitchell is that even though he is, I feel his his greatest strength is inhabiting these characters and having their voices. He does have. I was talking to someone who is a um, who's a writer who who framed David Mitchell's writing as sort of in the aphoristic mode, which I think is a really apt description. I Mitchell has this ability to, to sum things up in these little pithy one or two sentence uh, blocks that just, that just knock me, just knock me flat. I mean, the, the one about faith is right in the church is just incredible to me. I think that that little excerpt, I, I think sums up so much about just, what faith means or in this case doesn't mean to a lot of people or what by extension it does, right? You've got mm-hmm. this thing that has been so central to so much of human society for millennia. Um, but what if you're unable to perceive why it's right. meaningful to people? I mean, that that's a huge, that's a huge concept to be able to sum up in such a clever, pithy way. I mean, I feel Mitchell is, is just, <laughs> he has an incredible enviable skill in that department. You know, I mean, it certainly makes me, feel like an idiot as when I try to put words together compared to what this guy's capable of doing. Um, there's a, there's a, just as another example of that, um, something, um, Ewing says early on, you know, we were talking about Ewing again, just to go back to this faith theme, um, as someone who is, uh, kind of pious and well-meaning, but maybe slightly, uh, he, he can be taken advantage of at times due to his, um, either sort of physical or sometimes, uh, um, you know, weakness sometimes when it comes to just acting on his convictions. Right. And uh, one of the things he points out when it comes to this is peace, though, beloved of our Lord, is a cardinal virtue only if your neighbors share your conscience, uh, which is something that I think, one, deals specifically with his situation, but certainly also speaks as the larger themes of mm-hmm. the book of just humans, humans preying on humans and this notion of of human society, the give and take of human society. Right. It, has, it's yeah. a, it has to be, and it requires the interconnectedness yeah. that the book illustrates. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He also just, I'm just looking at this page and even just down halfway down this exact same page from where I just read, this is on page 16. And, uh, Ewing says as many truths as men, occasionally I glimpse a truer truth hiding in imperfect simulacrums of itself. But as I approach, it bestirs itself and moves deeper into the thorny swamp of descent. Yeah, it's just the ability to put words together. <laughs> it's just, it's just remarkable. Ugh. Um, and then I, I don't have Ugh. this, I don't have this bookmark, so I'm not going to read it directly, but the, one of my favorite moments in this book, and I, 
every time I, I read it, I, I reread it two or three times. Just I just finish it and I go right back and read it again. And it's the end of the Cavendish chapter, mm-hmm. um, which is remarkable, I think. When when they you know they escape in this <laughs> stolen SUV, they drive to this God, pub. God, so fun to where, read. Uh, it really was. Oh, it was such, such a, a pleasure. It was and so fun to read. These these these. Uh, <laughs> they're, no, they're in a Range Rover. Are, yeah. Are watching a football game against England, right? And you know everybody clearly in this uh, in this in this pub is 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 a Scot, right? Except except for uh, the Cavendish three people who, who never walk opens. In. Well, yeah. except for Cavendish who never opens his mouth, mm-hmm. and then the three the pursuers, right. who are coming back. One of whom owns the car and has this strong, I suspect, kind of London Queen's English kind of accent, and the way that the character. This complete invalid, Mr. Meeks, uh, takes advantage of this situation, this sort of Braveheart-like uh, rallying cry where he stands up on the bar and, are there no true Scotsman in the house? It's amazing. <laughs> you know, and just and, – and just in, in uh, enrages – you know, stirs this, this whole pub of – He starts uh, a bar Scotsman. fight. He Scots, starts a bar fight yeah. in the most – just at that moment in the most dramatic possible way. Right. And it's such – the thing I love about it is that even though it's the most mundane of all of the chapters, I think by far – I mean it's the, the – the Cavendish stuff is is the mo, is the kind of smallest of all of the stories in terms right. of what it actually physically, physically is about in terms of the plot. It's like an old and man who's a publisher who gets tricked into going to a nursing home. Which is a ludicrous concept. Right. But the thing that I think is so is so great about it is how exquisitely his torment is put on the page. Oh my gosh. I mean, it's, it's so good. It makes you just, it makes you see what being around him must be like, but also makes you love him, which I think is brilliant. It like, is. But yeah. it also, not only that, it really, <clears throat> it says a lot, I think, because in that situation, you can imagine if you've committed yourself to essentially an institution, you, I found it very believable. I mean, the, the initial <laughs> premise—the initial premise—is a little silly, and that his brother kind of tricks him into saying, you know, that that part is a little goofy. Obviously, it's unintentionally so. It's it's, right. it's it's absurd. But the the way that systems, sort of bureaucracies in particular, can self perpetuate their own kind—it's of, like Catch Twenty Two, right? right? The Joseph Heller novel. It's right. like it's that level of kind of believable absurdity right where you, you, this man is is gets trapped in this system that constantly just folds in on itself right the one-way valve that is going into right. the system and now you're just you're in it's yeah. just gonna keep yeah you can't yell and make a big stink because then they'll think you're crazy but you can't right. not say anything because right. then they'll think you're perfectly happy being here did I you mean, hear the author of the psychopathy uh, psychopathy test on npr on yeah. this american life talking about the guy who mm-hmm. the kid was 17 kicked the shit out of some homeless guy because he was nuts and um because he's a 17 whack job and then feigned insanity and now has been in the system for 23 years do you remember that story yeah Yeah, sorry it was yeah it's very similar so i thought that was an awesome story it was on this american life go ahead um that's all i was gonna say and so the and so cavendish is just subjected to this just litany of kind of petty injustices that add up (laughs) to the situation where you just you really feel for the guy, or I did anyway. Oh no, absolutely! And, and yeah. this this in, this moment at the end where they kind of enlist this whole bar right on their behalf, it was by that point you need it so bad. Yeah, you need yeah. you just you need this man who who to to 
have some be able to restore some semblance of dignity to his life you know, after just, <laughs> just just being just demolished mm-hmm. and, and i i just i loved it so much it was by far the moment of most extreme catharsis in the book for me i yeah. just I, when i i remember i was reading it on the bart the the commuter train in san francisco here and and i just i got to the end of it i just laughed i just it not because it was necessarily like there's a punchline or anything but just because it was like a release of right. just this, but this growing tension as you're reading all the things that are happening to this guy, and then Mitchell just lets it all out in such a ridiculous way, and he just I could not help but laugh, and immediately just read the whole thing another one or two times. I I love that passage. I have nothing else to say about it. It's just so <laughs> great. I just love it. I wonder how it'll be represented in the film. Yeah. So you want to talk about that? <laughs> I was trying to figure out three times trying to. Every time I thought about segging to the film, I couldn't think of a way to not do it snarky. So then I almost didn't didn't even want to talk about the film because I didn't want it was I didn't like what it was going to turn me into. <laughs> yeah. So here's my overriding assumption about the film. I could be- oh, sorry. No, uh, see, I was going to do it right there. Talking about that trailer turns you into a douche. But go ahead. <laughs> my feeling about this trailer is that that the Wachowski brothers saw Mitchell's quote about literal reincarnation and souls and said, Oh, that's what this is about. Let's make a movie about that. That's, that's because the, the yeah. everything in the trailer looks like it is. Whereas to me, that Tom Mitchell, Hanks that plays is kind the, of a, the protagonist in all of the f- stories. Right, and and Holly Berry, Holly Berry plays, plays the female, the female protagonist, protagonist in all the stories. And, uh, which Oof. I think is just awful. <laughs> and then, Oof. uh, except for the Somni one, apparently for well, some reason. And also, um, well, yeah, cause she's supposed to be, yeah, but why? Because and also the Frobisher story has no place for them. That's what's kind of silly about it to begin with, right? Is the notion that even if you were a reincarnation of a past soul, it seems – I already think that Mitchell interpretation is way too on the nose. But to have them literally look identical to each other is so much more – I mean it is like so far beyond the bounds. It feels like Robert Zemeckis to me. Exactly, yeah. It It feels like Jim Carrey playing every character. Level of just overly literal interpretation. Yeah. Right. Um, and but then the fact that Sonmi, who's no offense clearly, to Mr. Zemeckis, Sonmi is one of the of comet birthmark people, so she clearly is one of the reincarnated souls, and yet that's apparently not because Berry. she's Asian, and you can't like that's that just that's, that's like, totally that's yeah, one yeah. of the things that just cracks the oh god I didn't even <laughs> think about that um, and maybe I'm wrong maybe that's not the case but it sure seems like it based on the trailer um, anyway well because also Sonmi is held up as this sort of like Jesus figure yeah she's the, sort of the, the proto soul kind yeah. of that of that mold yeah essentially but um, no there's some problematic stuff like things this is something that I think is really interesting about novels versus um, film like because a film is like 90 minutes and you have to you're communicating so much about the characters in the, your initial representation of them like this is who i cast this is how they are in frame this is how they come into the scene this is what they do in the scene this is when they leave mm-hmm. you have the clock's ticking you have to make really smart choices and communicate as much information as possible and i think when you do that you you obviously lean on cliche and you lean you lean on trope and you lean on things exactly. the shorthand yep. so like the scene that like just just jumps out at me in the um in the in the trailer that just pissed me off it's such a small little thing but it's ewing sick in his cabin and the ship and he's being fed bread by the slave boy um i in the book i thought their relationship was really good i thought it was really um, 
it just made sense in the time period. It made sense of like who this this he, this kid wasn't just a slave. He was actually had been on multiple ships before. Mm-hmm. He'd become a slave underneath the um, one of the Polynesian tribes. Yeah, the the, the Ma- Maori. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Ewing helped him get his freedom. Oh no, he stowed away on this boat, and Ewing says, "Okay, look." Like he ends up bringing him onto the boat, but the character is is both like the the slave whose name it's Anna Atua. Atua. Like Atua feels like a fully formed character mm-hmm. to me in the Absolutely. book. And then I see Atua for two and a half seconds in the trailer, and it's the classic like noble mystical savage, noble yeah. savage feeding the white man the sick white man bread and then swinging from the goddamn mast of the of the schooner well, doing that's, something that's, cool that that's it's the kind just, of literalization that i think just makes me, and but film know. does that inherently like film does that so often just in its you have to really you have to burn a lot of calories as a director mm-hmm. and as a writer in film to eschew that stuff. Well, that's and when people I do, book. I think we appreciate it a lot. But no, books absolutely. have so much more breathing room in which to do that, and it just pisses me off when I see that stuff because it just feels like lazy filmmaking to me. Well, it's also it's also part of why this book probably should just not be a movie at all. No, because be, there's too much. There's, exactly, there's it would be si- it should be six movies. If you made this things, as a six yeah. movie, if this was six <laughs> movies. If this is like what I, series I made, the, I made a reference to this on the podcast once, and now I can't even remember the Decalogue. Like right. if this was, yeah, if this was the the Sextalogue, hot. <laughs> um, it'd be awesome. Yeah, it could well, be really fantastic. I mean, maybe it would have much more breathing room sure, with which to sure. be awesome. The other scene, and you know, again, we're judging all of this based on you know thirty second little bits here and there. So who knows? Obviously, but the other thing that really all signs point. I know. The other thing that gives me pause is the. Um, is all the Sanmi scenes, scenes, which are just the most Wachowski, Wachowski. The Wachowski ever. siblings are. The it's the. It's just the most. They cliche, paid their penance seriously. Shot you've ever seen, where it's the camera panning straight up in a sort of infinitely sprawling city, future cityscape. And it's all blue I mean, it's and black and teal. You've seen a million. It's times in the Matrix, in million, yeah, exactly. Yeah. In a million science fiction films of the last ten years, and it's the kind of thing that I. It's it's a specific type of emotion. That the Sanmi stuff never, never, it's never it, ever. It's about. The thing that's amazing about the, the Sanmi stuff, the thing that I, even as my least favorite story, the thing that when I get a little distance from it that I remember and I feel the most is not the setting of the story she's telling. It's this stark interrogation yep, room exactly. where there's the Absolutely. Orson on the table yep. and she's talking to the student or this, no, this historian, this archivist, and you see their relationship like there's this sort of sympathy at first and then there's this sort of questioning and then there's this curiosity and then there's this abrasion right. that is just so artfully presented in mm-hmm. just pure dialogue. Absolutely. Because it's in the book, it's just presented. It's like a, it looks like a, like a Q and a it's, you know, you see the bold mm-hmm. of the question and then you have the italic answer. <laughs> and that is all I see. If that entire section of that movie was just her telling the story in the room, it was just a world-class actor, like two world-class actors playing off of each other right. for 20 minutes of the movie. Like, if it was like Philip Seymour Hoffman and Joaquin Phoenix in the interrogation scene oh of The Master. Oh, my gosh. You know, if it were that, that would be... And, and that's a... No one's going to do that, of course. But And that's the thing. I mean, you, you couldn't... P.T. Anderson couldn't have made The Master be that for two hours. But like... No. Um, that's something that, as you say, you get a lot of... Well, this is a little bit different of a point, but I think it's related when it comes to what literature does really well. Um that entire section of the Sanmi 
the entire Sami story can be simultaneously set in a crazy speculative futuristic world and also just in an interrogation room. Yeah. And there's no – there is zero – conflict there from a in terms of the text right uh, whereas in the in the in the movie every single scene they have to decide well now this is where we blow x millions of dollars right and just there's even a scene is she telling Sonya's this or are we like showing this jumping onto a crazy hover plane thing and that's just the kind of oh, there, are as a, there is a hover plane yeah and that's just the kind of overt concrete spectacle that the book i think very wisely that's what keeps it from just being sort of a trashy thing where it's like you're describing the sound of a jet engine as, you know, the kind of just masturbatory science fiction that is common. You know, I mean, it's, it's, sorry, I'm just, I'm just, I'm, I'm living a fantasy where we somehow become friends with David Mitchell and make him, make him write 500 words about a hover plane. <laughs> but you know the kind of fiction I'm talking oh, about. Oh, yeah. Though, right? I mean, it's just, it's, or like, the, also called the fantasy, I'm 13. The fantasy equivalent. Yeah. And reading books. pages about like a sword fight. And it's just Ender's the most game, idiotic crap right. you've ever read, right? right? But it's like all over the place. And, uh, and that's, that's what I think of when I see scenes like that. It, yeah, and it, yeah, it yeah. just kills me. You know, I just, and it's so funny too, because David Mitchell is, um, he seems so just fine with it, which is totally a good attitude to have, right? Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't think it would be really helpful to anyone if David Mitchell went around deciding this movie was terrible and telling everyone. So I think it's fine no. that he sees it and it's like, oh, whatever, cool. I got a house. Do whatever you want. <laughs> I think that's fine. Um, but it, it, it definitely, um, the fact that that the movie they're making is so um, seems to me to be so either deliberately or not informed by that specific uh, literal soul transference interpretation um, just convinces me all the more that they this probably shouldn't have been a movie in the first place. That's the kind of of in the text itself, right? Discounting Mitchell's external statements, but in the text itself, that is very much an ambiguity you know it's very it's very much left to the reader right um and as soon as you decide to make that concrete and take a stand on that literally on the screen i think i think you're losing i think you lose something you know because there's not even it, it's when you literally see tom hanks playing the same five guys like playing five guys with the same face i mean that just seems like a cartoon to me that just god seems, it does you know he has anyway. a face tattoo on the poster. Yeah, I know. All right, we should stop talking about yeah. this. We should end on positive note. Anyway, this is like this has do been a good. Wanna, do we want to chat? Read the end, like, the last paragraph of this book, which is just the most uplifting. Yeah, go ahead. I think that'd be just really to wonderful. Wash out. So, <laughs> don't worry. I'm going to ask people to like us on Facebook as soon as you do that. <laughs> <laughs> also, follow our Twitter feed. <laughs> While Chris is looking it up uh, at Idol Book Club on Twitter. And uh, we have a Facebook page for the um, cast, which is actually something, I mean, obviously you feel like you always have to do that stuff, but what's cool about it is it has milestones for all the books we have read in really nice big pictures, and it actually shows you two books into the future of what we're going to be reading. Um, Telegraph Avenue next month and the month after that will be uh, Evidence of Things Unseen by Marianne Wiggins, which will be exciting. I'm looking forward to that. So this is not the last paragraph. It's the third, fourth to last paragraph, but it's the one that I think really sums up the book. This is Ewing in his journal. If we believe that humanity may transcend tooth and claw, if we believe diverse races and creeds can share this world as peaceably as the orphans share their candlenut tree, if we believe leaders must be just, violence muzzled, power accountable, and the riches of the earth and its oceans shared equitably, such a world will come to pass. I'm not deceived. It is the hardest of worlds to make real. 
torturous advances won over generations can be lost by a single stroke of a myopic president's pen or a vainglorious general's sword. Um, he goes on to to kind of imagine his father-in-law's, uh, what he calls, <laughs> uh, you know, his response where his, his father essentially denigrates this naivete and idealism and, and says, oh, naive dreaming Adam, he would do battle with the many-headed hydra of human nature, must pay a world of pain, and his family must pay it along with him. And only as you gasp your dying breath shall you understand your life amounted to no more than one drop in the limitless ocean, to which Adam hypothetically responds, yet what is any ocean but a multitude of drops? And that's just such a resolutely optimistic, hopeful attitude that, you know, as I, as I said earlier, I think is, is in a lot of ways, you know, it could be perceived as kind of trite and obvious. But again, I think it's just the beauty with which Mitchell explored those themes over the course of the book that I think gives it its credence and allows me to totally buy into that when, when Ewing just comes right out and says it at the end. I think it's wonderful. Yeah, that was fantastic. Great. Right. Anyway, I hope you liked it too. And uh, we'll be back in a month. Next month. Yeah. Thanks a lot, guys. Michael Shabin's Telegraph Avenue. Yep. Bye. That's it for this month. Join us next time on the Idle Book Club when we will discuss Telegraph Avenue by Michael Shabon. For Idle Thumbs, I'm Alex Ashby.